Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back, listen, and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. In this episode, we listen to Dr. Laura Benfield talk about library and information sciences. She discusses topics such as how she has seen the field evolve, the different perspectives on libraries, and what she envisions for the future of the library and information sciences field. We hope you enjoy. I'm really happy to have you here with us today, Laura. And as a start to this episode, would you introduce yourself to our podcast listeners? Sure. And thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this discussion. So I'm Laura Banfield. I am a health sciences librarian in the health sciences library at McMaster. My primary responsibilities over the last 15 years have been for nursing, midwifery, global health, child life, and also getting heavily involved in like the knowledge synthesis and higher level in-depth research support. I'm also affiliated with some of the different research teams and units. So I'm an adjunct scientist with the midwifery research, McMaster Midwifery Research Center. And I have a faculty appointment through the nursing program that also follows into a role in supervising students in the global health program. Great, thank you. I've been so interested in talking with you because I follow as uh, an outsider or on the periphery, the changes, the evolution, and the rapidly evolving field of library and information sciences. So I'd love to hear from you as one who has expertise in library and information sciences. How have you seen this field evolve in the past decade or so? And I recognize that is a very big question. So feel free to take this in any direction you wish. That, you're right, that is a huge question when you think about it. And I will start by saying that I feel fortunate that when I went through library school, as we, many of us refer to it, I was kind of in that bridging phase between almost old school library school, where we learned about cataloging, we had all these like we learned the whole realm of library and information science. Strategic planning was a new exciting course (laughs) at the time that I was in. So let's just say I got grounded in uh, in the hard skills, like in the what, what goes on, like the information architecture, really investing in as strong what we would call like a reference interview or how we interact with people when they're seeking information. And of course, being the geek, if you will, that I am, I got Uh deeply intrigued by the theory of information retrieval. Uh So I know, which maybe makes me suited to the roles that I have or explains the roles that I have. So so I think that that has helped when I 
when I respond to this question of what have I seen over the past 10 years, the past even, well, just over 15 since I started out mm. as a librarian, there's been changes certainly with technology and our desire to have information rapidly, mm. right? Like we want those preprints. Um, there's like these med archive acts, like these other preprint. Well, that's not even a preprint. Like that's another depository where people access information or articles before they've even been maybe accepted for publication. So there, so we have this, we've almost gone into this hyperdrive or overdrive in our quest for having access to that information. But alongside that, we've also had this proliferation of information sources and resources. And we've tended to focus a lot on the digital and what's available online and how rapidly we can get it. And we have all these partnerships and repositories that exist for making information accessible and available. But we maybe haven't always kept up in terms of our, and I'm saying this broadly, in terms of making sure that everyone is as aware of where that information is coming from and is always looking at it as mm. critically as they might. And by that, I mean, we have the rise of the predatory journals, right? So journals that are more more commercially driven. And when we talk about predatory, we're talking about things that may not adhere to strict standards of publishing ethics or editorial ethics and practices. So we have to be, so while we've got this proliferation and this rapidity of information coming out, there's a parallel of information that is maybe being retracted or that isn't necessarily going through the same rigors of practice in terms of making sure that we're always on top of it. And, and I don't mean that as a critique so much as an awareness right? that, inf that there is information that gets published, right? Like, why do we have not everything that gets published is good. We, we know that. Um, we know that, that whether it's in an academic or research information or community-driven greylet information sphere, we know that we're not just always consumers. Everyone can be a producer of information. Mm -hmm. You know, as you're talking, it gave me a new insight into my, if I think back to my experience with the library sciences field, I think immediately of those library school examples that you might have been alluding to, like understanding the Dewey Decimal System, understanding how card catalogs are arranged. And so I have these images of the large card catalogs that would be found in the, the libraries. But you're also highlighting to me that that whole system of the card catalogs, the numbering or the decimal system that we would use was also a form of quality control in that there was a sense of some sort of evaluation of the product that would then get cataloged so that others can access that information. And now as we're moving towards more digital access, that quality control piece has had to be redefined. Does that summarize what you're, you're expressing? 
I think it does. Actually, that summarizes it beautifully because what came to mind as you were saying that was that there was an intentionality in the selection. Mm, yes. Right? Like there I was never more, thought about it that way. Yeah. yeah there's more control over the selection of that material. And laughably, because I am the age that I am, I one of my high school projects was doing the summer jobs was actually digitizing or creating the online, the virtual, the digital catalog for my local public <laughs> library system. So, or, you know, but as you're saying that, yeah. So, and so we also think that the role of library and information scientists and archivists and anyone that works in the, like what is sometimes referred to as the cultural heritage industry or the cultural industry is so library archives, information science, museums, and so forth we are not as bounded or the expectations of us and what we're doing is not so bounded to the collections that we maybe have physically in-house or digital, digitally in-house, if you will, in terms of what our subscriptions are or our permanent access to back files and other content. So there is, yeah, there's an element of quality, but there's also this element too of and when we talk about this frequently in health sciences and other disciplines too, is our use of critical thinking or critically appraising. And what I love to do and what I found myself doing, even especially at the beginning of the pandemic, this may make you chuckle, is that I would point to um, this beautiful infographic by an international by the International Federation of Library Associations that was about how to spot fake news. So when we think of early critical appraisal-y things, we think of the crap test, right? Currency, relevancy, authority, and so forth. But now we've also got an audience that is broader, or a community of users of information and what they have access to. So this curation, right. this quality yes. is shifting. So then, and can we look at, and now we're purchasing even more so at like these big package bundle levels too. Mm. Right? Like we're not necessarily selecting, I don't want to say that we're not necessarily selecting individual titles because we still are, but we're also purchasing online content in a bundled standpoint, but we're also recognizing that high quality information is not always just within the standard academic research journals, for example, or academic texts, the content that we have in an academic library, or more specifically, an academic health sciences library or hospital library, we recognize that there's amazing information even coming out with different community partnerships, community engaged projects. I always yeah. would like point to some of the reports that were coming out when we we're looking at the idea of safe ingestion sites, right? Like that evidence was coming from these community organizations, right? Like they were doing rigorous studies. They were producing that information. Or as we shift and think about it from the standpoint of who the community of users is, community of producers, and so we think more broadly and we look at our relationships with uh, with community. So again, and when I say community, I'm saying this broadly is I'm thinking about how we conceptualize information now. Right. Right. Like I don't remember being taught 
or really thinking as much about Indigenous ways of knowing or traditional ways of knowing. So now how do we layer that into it? And how do we talk about that alongside these Western conceptualizations? So it's almost like it's exploded. And even if some of that was there, how it's exploded is our access to it. Yes. And then we now have to think more about equity of access too. Right. And, you know, this, what you're saying completely aligns with the thoughts that are running through my head as you're talking, because as you're highlighting, not only has the shift in digital, digitalizing uh, library and information science content, uh, potentially leading to the proliferation of fake news or bad, uh, quote unquote, bad information, but it also allows for the expansion and for further promotion and elaboration on other ways of knowing beyond our traditional Western uh, narrowly defined, quote, scientific research. And so Indigenous ways of knowing was one that I was also thinking of as you were talking and expanding our concept or our, our conceptualization of what information is and what we can access. And I think that that leads into my next question, because I am curious to know what current projects you're working on, and perhaps some initiatives that might then allow for us to build on what you're talking about and expanding our access and availability of these different sources of information. So it's as though you read my mind, because this last bit to me is personally very exciting and intriguing, and it maybe goes back to some of my non-library specific interests or history, because, I mean, yes, I'm a librarian, and people say, okay, you're a librarian, but I also happen to have a master's in circumpolar health and well-being, right? So I've spent time in that, in other spheres and other spaces, and thinking about what can, what actually constitutes evidence? What constitutes information? So as I'm looking ahead to things that I am personally going to be invested in or working on in the coming right now and in the coming years is this idea of how we work with, I don't want to say other sources of information, but that's what I'm going to say. Like, so how do we work with oral histories? Like, how do we integrate these ways, non-Western ways of knowing? and give them the appropriate recognition or the recognition that they merit, that they deserve. So how do we work alongside that and integrate it to, together so that we're looking at information, but we're looking at how we're using that information in a more holistic way that we are giving merit, like we are giving credit to it, that we are also looking at expressions of that information. Mm. So what can you learn by looking at an, an artifact or what can we learn when we think about these different cultural representations that may have something to do with, again, thinking about it from a health sphere, but how does that teach us about conceptualizations of health? So that thing, that object is actually a source of information mm -hmm. that needs to be integrated in how we might approach a decision or how we approach working and understanding 
I know that seems maybe a little bit vague, but to me, that's the that's one of the exciting parts where I'm moving into is helping people work with um, information from an from an accessibility lens too. Just making sure. So, how are we also taking making our information more accessible, but making it more accessible and more equitable? So, how do we challenge some of the traditions of the library and information sciences and archival world to make it a more equitable environment. So I, I know that I've got accessibility projects coming on. So how are we handling our digital and our physical space to actually also represent the people that create or that are the producers of these different forms of information. And I've been kind of thinking about it. I've had these like recent thoughts about it from a standpoint of community and neighborhood. So the library as part of the community. So we're no longer, we shouldn't be viewing ourselves just purely as supporters as in the service of others, but we're collaborators. We're part of this broader community. Hmm. And so how, so one of the initiatives I'm working on, on is looking at how our virtual spaces and our physical spaces reflect that community and how our how community interacts with that. So community is faculty, students, employees, uh, people that have a need for coming onto campus. So when I think about community, I'm not saying community broadly, but community is also ourselves because we operate and function within these spaces. So how are these spaces working for us and taking this lens that is broader, that is like, is it meeting everyone's needs? Does someone feel, whether it's digital, the digital environment or the physical environment, that they can come into this space, that they can navigate it, that, that barriers to access, so moving from access to accessibility, that those barriers to, to access are being reduced, but that there's also a recognition of the perspective, everything that that, that person brings with them when they're accessing information so that we're appropriately working together. I, yeah, I know that, that doesn't so sound like a very concrete, but it's more of a, no, how you are know, we shifting? It, I think, your, your words are really quite profound in my mind because the image that I'm getting as you're speaking is that historically we've come from a place where we view libraries as repositories of information. And even when we say information, that definition was very much limited to the way in which we would catalog that information, what information we would allow into our repository, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And now what you're describing, it gives me the image that we're moving from a repository based perception of our libraries, and into a more dynamic and interactive space. And so that interactivity, I don't know if this is accurately um, articulating what you're trying to describe, but it gives me the sense that there's more of a living, dynamic, interactive component to how we, how as individuals or communities engage with the library and the field of library and information sciences, so that not only are we producers of information or communities can be producers of information and 
expanding our understanding or our conceptualization of what evidence or what constitutes as evidence. Uh, so expanding that definition, but then also you're, you're describing in, increasing and facilitating the accessibility piece. So not just then coming to the library, retrieving from the repository, but then now facilitating wider and broader access in the community as well as participating in that knowledge creation and knowledge production. How does that um, sound? Oh, you have summed it up so well. I, I love those words, dynamic and interactive. And I think that is also the challenge that libraries face though, mm. is yeah. this, this reputation or this, or this like in, oh, it's a repository or this is what libraries do. This is what library and information workers do right like when I describe some of what I do to people they're like oh mm -hmm. yes uh, and this is why I'm so glad that we're able to talk because it can help us expand our understanding and yeah it, teach it us can and it's yeah so there's just so like to me I see that potential and that's maybe why I'm so excited to be in the library is to see this potential of this, like this shift that we're seeing too, as more and more people open up their minds to what it could be. So it's, it's producers, it's consumers, it's sharers. Yes, I like that. Producers, consumers, sharers. And so there is that collaborative and participatory aspect that, and I think that this is a nice segue into my final question, which I'll use as uh, our, our opportunity to wrap up our conversation as well, is where do you see, and you've already hinted at some of these pieces, where do you see the field of library and information sciences evolving into the future based on what you're currently doing and the directions that you can see those projects and initiatives head? So, and please take this with a, I'm a frontline library and information science worker. I am not a scholar per se or theorist in the field. So I will share from my perspective what I see. Certainly, happening. yes. And, You're and not bound to any of your uh, speculations. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. We won't come back to you five years from now to say, Laura, you know, you said this. <laughs> Yeah, you, you didn't earn your reputation as a futurist. Um, yes. So I guess where I see it moving, again, it's, it is really taking up this new mantle of equity. This, and, and by new mantle of equity, I mean, if we think of the history of libraries, if we think back to Carnegie, all the positive and negative things that he did but one of his big things was opening up making sure there were like public libraries and sponsoring the uh, the buildings of those mm. like even here in Hamilton if you look at down in Dundas the Dundas art gallery place is actually a Carnegie library oh I know yeah so you can actually start yeah. to recognize Carnegie libraries and so his big philanthropic element was this idea of opening up access to information because access to information leads to also access to education, whether it's self-education in the absence of being able to maybe 
pursue other forms of education. So we have right. to think back to those higher ideals because right. I'll, I'll, if we go even further back in time or, or why Carnegie went this way was because libraries were like private collections or they were housed in monasteries. So right. who could access them? Yes. Right? And we had the printing press, which started to make things, information more available. So to me, I just see that an expansion of that even more like that core ideal of libraries as almost an equalizer, but we have to turn that equalizer from just access to accessibility, to this recognition of all these multiple spheres of knowing, being, understanding, conceptualizing, and that the work of the of those within the library and information field and in the archival field and the museum field and so forth. What our work is often is helping people navigate that space, whether it's digitally or physically, but, but also promoting the recognition and promoting the appropriate use. So it's not just equitable use, but when we think about some of our collections, who should be using them? Who should have access? And maybe this is me thinking a little bit more into some of the archives and the papers of different people or the right. relics and artifacts that form yes. parts of these organizations. But it then goes into, so how do we take this notion of accessibility or equity and keep expanding upon it so that, so that the libraries become this living space that is continually serving, supporting, collaborating with its community, but is responsive and has the capacity to do it. So how do we take that to the next level of just, hey, Carnegie, we opened the doors. Mm -hmm. We made this available. Now we have to, and then, so we made it available. Then we went to access and increasing access digitally. Let's make it equitable. Let's figure out ways so that people see themselves reflected. And to our earlier part of the discussion, when you were talking about westernized views, yeah, let's use that library as that, common space mm. where you can bring who you are to it where the library is part of a I I was thinking about this in terms of when I use that community example I was thinking about the library uh, and the campus because I'm going to think about it from the campus standpoint that the campus is our neighborhood it's our virtual and our physical neighborhood so how do we move within that space mm. so that we are continually working together in collaboration. So it's maybe not necessarily a high lofty view of the future, but to me, the future is reducing barriers. Mm -hmm. It's um, reducing the number of physical, digital doors. It's looking at, do we really have to do things this way? So, but how else then are we ensuring that people have the skills and knowledge, the capacity, the tools, to then interact and work with this information. So it's still like same old, same old, but it's also expanding it. Like it's blowing it up beyond what we think of as our neighborhood or as our community to really open up our minds a little bit more to, yes, there's design elements, right? So how will someone who's neurodiverse interact with this? How will someone from a different cultural, eth ethnic background who doesn't, isn't versed in North American ways of knowing your westernized culture. Like, so how will this reflect and help them navigate whether there's a person digitally or physically facilitating that access or they're pursuing it on their own. So what can we do? 
to value ourselves, but and also think of ourselves as people in that space. So I yes. really, to me, it is really thinking about that digital space as place for us. And, and that's where we're going to be able to be responsive as our community evolves, as these other forms of knowledge evolve. Yes. And I, I find that really inspiring, Laura, because what you're describing is that the field of library and information sciences, as well as the practice and the structures, uh, the library structures will continue to evolve. They will not be calcified structures that remain embedded within one time point in our history, but rather we're moving and growing, evolving, opening more doors, allowing or facilitating greater access to our global community as our world changes, as our technology shift, as our physical structures also change and grow. That's exactly it. So the future of the library is to continuously evolve and grow in response to and in anticipation of what's happening around us. That's really exciting. Thank you so much, Laura, for sharing your wisdom and your insights. And I know I will have so much to think about even after our conversation. No, thank you, Ruth. This has been a true pleasure and a privilege to speak to you about this. It was fun for me to be like, oh, let me imagine. Yes, me too. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's macpfd.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.